Hello everyone, welcome back to It's a Wonderful Podcast. And today we have what isn't, but feels like, a discovery of a totally new, very famous, very notable actress today. And why I say that is because we're talking about a glorious Swanson movie, but not Sunset Boulevard. A glorious Swanson movie from her actual star time in Hollywood. Um, Although, to be fair, this is probably slightly after she was at her absolute biggest uh, in terms of stardom. Um, Because we're talking about 1931's Tonight or Never today, which is, well, I suppose it's a rom-com. Isn't it really? Yeah. You have a, it's one of the, the fancy rom-coms that you get in the 30s, especially in the early 30s, where you just have seemingly very wealthy people who do very little, but happen to have lots of money and lots of travel ability. To travel, and, and yes, and a bit um, of misunderstandings adding to the screwball energy of the plot and Oh, there's a, there's a touch of screwball in there. I don't necessarily think it's uh Well, I just, mean the, I just mean the concept of having, of having a misunderstanding that could easily, like, explain things. But obviously, we don't get that until the end, which is very much of rom-coms. <laughs> yeah, you are absolutely right. You have your, um, you know, your, your male lead as played by Melvin Douglas in yes. this movie. Um, and, of course, your, your actual full lead. Gloria Swanson, they they play off each other really well. There's a, yeah. there's a bit of a there's obvious fondness between them. There is at times animosity between them. Um, that is very screwball comedy. You could perhaps call a movie like this um, formative for the screwball comedy genre. It's almost as though. It feels to me a lot like uh, like an Ernst Lubitsch movie, but it's obviously not. It's Samuel Goldwyn produced, Mervyn Leroy directed. Mervyn Leroy, by the way, is a great, prolific director. Decades worth of great movies there, several of which we, we have covered on this show. Um, also one of the... Uh, approximately 423 directors that the wizard of oz had yeah (laughs) um because obviously the wizard of oz had a lot of directors yeah how how the wizard of oz ever became as coherent and competent and wonderful as it is with all the sloppiness going on Behind the scenes, yeah. I will never, never know. It is one of the great mysteries of old Hollywood, I think. But I'm excited to talk about this movie today. I'm always excited to get back into pre-code movies um, of a lighter variety as well. You, you're not dealing with horrible crime violence and, and nastiness that you get in some pre-code movies, of course. This is your more romantic viewed romantic focused pre-code movie so you do end up getting very frank discussions about for example the profession of being a gigolo which is frequently mentioned in this movie which you are always taken aback by such discussions aren't you when you watch pre-code movies i think it's you just feel like yeah you forget that they went there yes You have to remind yourself, oh, yes, that's right. This is pre-code and therefore is actually more real. We're just sensitized, desensitized to coded times, aren't we, I suppose, uh, with a lot of what we we talk about, um, which is unfortunate, really. We always say that, you know, if, if movies had... If movies had have stayed as they did before the code, had the, had the Hayes Code not ever been enforced properly, then I, I, I think old movies would be loved even more than they are. Because I always think a lot of 
younger peoples or younger movie fans, you know, newer movie fans issues with older movies is because they feel in an alien world to them. Yeah. Yeah. If you showed them a pre-code movie, I think it would feel more more like, modern to them. Yeah. You know, more like something they want. But my God, if they're not gonna go and watch a 50s movie, how can you convince them to watch a movie from 1931? You, yeah. You're not <laughs> going to do that with some people. And that is always a very unfortunate thing. But did you enjoy this movie tonight or never? I did. I mean, I only know Gloria Swanson from uh, Sunset Boulevard, and I know her to that to have been this kind of interesting parallel on her career of having this really early on starlet stardom and and then going into her older years, you know, losing that and still trying to hang on to it. Um, so I was really excited to delve into and actually see this early stage of her career and, and young Gloria Swanson in, in her prime. So yeah. um, that alone was really interesting me uh, about this movie. So um, yeah, I ultimately, you know, you know, I'm a rom-com girly. So anything that really um, kind of shows me and illustrates to me kind of the groundwork laid by these older films to where we are now with, with romantic comedies is always a fun kind of journey to take. So, yeah, very much so. And, that what you just said there is is exactly why I opened the movie by saying it feels like a discovery of a totally new, very notable actress, even though it's actually not. Yeah. Because obviously we we know and love Sunset Boulevard, but it, it's it, I suppose awful in a way, really, that we now you know most of the time go and watch sunset boulevard before we see anything else from glorious once and that's certainly what happened here this yeah. is the only other glorious once movie that i've seen as well yeah. so it's strange how we watch sunset boulevard because it's obviously so well renowned and so good and just a, a perfect hollywood noir it's unbelievable sunset boulevard really you 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 get few better movies. I think it's such a wonderful, wonderful movie. But you've got to think about watching that movie in context for the people in 1950 that were watching that movie who were well familiar with Gloria Swanson from, from 20 years before, 25 years before. Yeah. And must have wondered, oh, yeah, that's right. Where's she? Where's she been? This movie's like, it's a movie about her. It might be a documentary, but it's not <laughs> fictional. Yeah. We don't think about that now because we think of that retroactively now. We watch Sunset Boulevard and then realize. Then go that back. It's oh, yeah. Really about her. Yeah. Um, it's so it, it was very nice in that way, you know, just to have that in your mind to go and watch. A, uh, a Gloria Swanson movie from, like you said, from her her prime, really. Although I, I would say it's probably slightly past well, her past because she did definitely. like silent movies and stuff like that, yeah. right? She was definitely her biggest in in silent movies. I know she was nominated and I believe won a couple of early Oscars um, in the late twenties. Um, I'm sure I've got that right, although. I now hate that I can't confirm as to what they are, but I've definitely read that somewhere yeah. and seen that somewhere. Um, she was a massive, massive name, a massive, massive deal. And I think she's a great actor, obviously, for this time. Yeah. It's strange. it's strange that, again, I'm going to say we've obviously only seen her in Sunset Boulevard apart from this movie that we're now talking about. So whether we can say she's a great actor or is she just great in Sunset Boulevard? No, I think she's a great actor now. Yes. Having seen this movie, I think she's such a good performer for these kind of movies that Tonight or Never is the lighter, 
Galicia kind of like you say mismatch romance misunderstanding romance movie that has its drama to it has its emotion to it allows her to bring her silent movie talents of incredible expressionism in her face that's something that's very prevalent in sunset boulevard as well yes yes definitely um and but something like in this movie as well yes and something like singing in the rain would have you believe that a lot of silent actors really struggled with you know going into talkies um so i can see elements of her performance that definitely speak to somebody from the silent era she's very like you said she conveys a lot of emotion and she's a little bit loud and boisterous in moments but that kind of speaks to the character she's a bit of a diva she's this you know uh famous singer and um you know she's kind of desperate for love and and um and so that is kind of where a lot of her emotionality is coming from. So I think how she plays it almost a little bit spoiled in moments and frustrated in moments because she's lonely or because no one will be honest with her about things and her kind of going a little bit over the top with it, I think definitely fits with the silliness of the character and plays into kind of the rom-com elements of it. So I think her having that, um, skill set of having to kind of over emote in silent films really um works well for her here in this movie yeah i think a lot of a lot of movies that you'll get in in the late 20s and very early 30s are obviously producers directors filmmakers in any field of hollywood trying to obviously change their entire mentality their entire way of making movies from silent to sound and still adhering to a lot of what worked in silent movies but putting sound on it whilst still of course trying to innovate yeah. and to you know to to change into a movie that plays not like a silent movie with sound, but like a sound movie. Um, I think sometimes it really works um, because it allows you to be more theatrical, like you said, and, and it comes off as appropriate for the movie you're watching. Sometimes it doesn't work. And Singing in the Rain, as you've just mentioned there, is very accurate in the struggles of the you know hollywood studios at the in the turn of the late 20s when sound movies began to happen um because it was obviously a massive struggle yeah you had to change your entire way of production virtually overnight because when people realized sound movies could exist then talking pictures could exist. Then if you didn't do that, were you behind the times? Of course, there were still great silent movies made after the invention of sound movies, of talking movies. But, you know, were you latching on to a bygone era at that point? Yeah. You had to innovate, you had to change. Yes. And of course, of course, of course you did. Um, before we get into the 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 main meat of today's episode, because of course I could waffle on for hours about <laughs> anything to do with this era in Hollywood, we do have to do one thing. We have to say a big thank you to all our patrons of It's a Wonderful yes. Podcast. We love them dearly. We can't do what we do without their generous support. So the least they all deserve is every week on an episode of one of the shows. We give them a big thank you and a big shout out just to say how appreciative we are of yes. their love and support. So, of course, a big thank you to start us off to Marie Zambino. And thank you, Adam Witt. Thank you to Michael Smith. Thank you, Maxwell Haddad. Thank you to Amber Coates. Thank you, Abby Friel. Thank you to Faraz Muthana. 
Thank you, 90s Comics Box, a.k.a. my big brother, Justin. Thank you to Video Drew. Thank you, Tina Farrow. Thank you to Marcus Burton. Thank you to Movie Venobi Steve. Thank you, Patrick Harden. Thank you, Carla Fis. Thank you to the great Ken Napsok. Thank you to our good friends, Tom and Kimber of Odd Shape Channel. Thank you to Eric Garcia. And thank you to Billy Pollahan. Yes. <laughs> Applause for the patrons. Applause Yay. for the movie. I do not want this episode to just become me showing my fondness for early sound movies and that time <laughs> in Hollywood. Please, let's actually talk about the movie itself that we're supposed to be talking about. Because while I do think it fits so well into this time in Hollywood, because you get so many movies, rightly so. I mean, why wouldn't you think about it? You want to capitalize on the use of sound, the use of talking in your movies. Why would you not have so many movies that are about singers, music, you know, performances, Broadway, yeah. opera, all this kind of stuff? So we have an opera singer. This movie is about opera. Really? Uh, Gloria Swanson is our opera singer in Venice. There's some nice Venetian-looking scenes in the movie. Yeah, right well. at the start. We, we yeah. Like um, yeah, right at the start, we open in Venice. And she is seemingly very successful as a, as a singer, although a couple of people who are leaving the theatre say, oh, she'll never be great. She'll never be one of the great. She sings with wonderfully with her voice, but without any heart. Yes, without there's no emotion or love in her singing. Yeah. Um, this is the kind of, this is what she has to must learn over the course of the movie, isn't it? Yeah. Learn to have a heart and not be so cold, Gloria. Yeah. That's, that's the entire point of the movie, really. But she goes home, she laments a little bit. Her ridiculous barren husband, who is a frighteningly spineless man. I mean, what? Well, yeah, he's her fiancé, and they've had this three-year engagement. And it's presumably like a staged relationship because they're both these famous singers, and um, it feels like a relationship kind of just built out of publicity. Um. And obviously, like, they go on that. They go on this on this radio thing, don't they? Yeah. Right at the start of the movie, where this I felt this was hilarious as well. By the way, this oh, like the Italian radio guy, man, <laughs> yes, yeah. ha has them right out of the right out of the the opening performance of which Show, you don't yeah. see the opening. You don't see the opening performance of the movie. You just see the patrons of the opera leave the opera theater yeah but then you you have gloria swanson and and her fiance the baron or count or whatever he is um give this sort of little radio speech and get introduced in this incredibly flamboyant manner by this radio presenter who has a sponsor quote that I thought was really funny because he lists off this ridiculously long Italian brand name and then says, this company's motto is, our spaghetti is longer than our name. <laughs> yeah. What a stupid joke that was. I kind right. of, okay, this is, this is the level of comedy we're dealing with. That we're getting here, yeah. Tonight or never. Um, I don't mind that at all. It, it shows you just how light-hearted the movie really is. It's not to be taken overly Super seriously. seriously this, yeah. This is a movie that is there for swooning entertainment, for people to go and watch and go, oh, pretty, rather than let's think for three years about the meaning of this movie. 
Yeah. This is, you know, the, the, this is your crowd pleaser of yeah. the movie, really, isn't it? Um, but yeah, the this so that opening radio interview situation is kind of silly. But then Gloria Swanson gets a little bit annoyed at the. <laughs> I I I I, I want to keep calling her her. I want to keep calling him her husband, but he's obviously not. So I'm yeah. going to call him the Baron, even though he's not a Baron. Although he looks like a Baron, he's wearing a monocle. He's in Europe. Oh my gosh, the monocle. <laughs> Yes. It just reminds me of Baron Frankenstein, I think. I think that's why. There's several things about this movie that remind me of Frankenstein, actually. So I suppose we'll get to that. Yes. <laughs> um, the fact it's in Europe, there's somebody wearing a monocle. Boris Karloff. Karloff is just randomly Boris there. Karloff in the movie? Where's, it's just like a waiter with one from? line of dialogue. <laughs> He has more than one line of dialogue. I think he has, you know, one scene. one scene, one scene, um, and we do get a bit of a old house reunion, I guess. <laughs> oh, old, old, yes, old dark. Well, it would, it wouldn't be an old dark house reunion. It would, the old dark house will be a reunion of this movie. Ah, yes, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, your your male lead is Melvin Douglas, who who was in. The old dark house, nineteen thirty-two, and who definitely now, by the way, is going into the mustache hall of fame. Oh, okay. He didn't go in for the old dark house, and I think and that was because I didn't really like him in the old. Dark I house. mean, this is his third appearance on this channel. Did he go in for Mister Blanding's built his dream house? I don't remember him going in for Mister Blanding's built his dream house. I can barely remember him in Mister Blanding's yeah, built his dream house. I don't yeah. even know if he had his mustache. Yeah, he's on the poster. I think he was like their friend, if I remember. They're kind yeah, of like, a like annoying, like fast talking too, kind of friend. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it was such a long time ago. I don't remember <laughs> too much about Mister Blanding's built his dream house, to be honest. But um, no, he's definitely going in now because I actually do like his character in this movie. He is the kind of jokey romantic male lead that you get in early 30s rom-coms. Yeah. That never tell anybody their actual reasons for doing anything. They always respond to everything with a witty comment. They never, but they just never, they let everybody around them believe what they want about them. Well, I mean, rather he... than actually telling anybody what their actual purpose is. And yes, yes. okay, that's for a reason in this movie. And there were attempts of him to try to say, adventure. yes. Um, there were attempts of him trying to like say, but the attempts weren't very hard. Like he didn't try very hard to to, to uh, speak his truth. Uh, he was definitely giving me like William Powell vibes in terms of how kind of playful he was being in the scenes with Gloria Swanson. Um, yeah, I, I don't think, but he's also, is he not also giving like Herbert Marshall in Trouble in Paradise vibes as well? I don't yes. even think I don't necessarily think that's a William Powell thing. I happen to think William Powell does it the best of everybody yes, definitely. from this particular era, but it's definitely just a male romantic lead thing from yeah. the to early kind of to mid play. Because you know, we see Cary Grant doing stuff like that as well. Um so yeah, I mean, how it starts out is he is seemingly someone who isn't a bit infatuated with her. He's walked by her window for the past three nights and she's seen him and sees him to be this handsome man. And we see her kind of have these idealistic dreams about falling in love. And I think, you know, how people talk to her about her performances, she is kind of aware of the fact that people think she needs more um, emotion in her singing and you know she needs to know those feelings of love and able in order to emote that while she's performing so she has all this kind of pressure on her for for those aspects and and 
these inner desires of wanting to be loved and be in love. But she's, it also scares her in some ways. So she's very intrigued by this man who is constantly walking by. She finds him to be very handsome. She has this little kind of gossipy thing with um, her, like one of her maids who tells her when he's out there and she'll run to the window and look at him. And, um, and then when he actually does make an advance, he throws some flowers over her balcony with a little note um, she gets really excited and wants to kind of go to him, but she ultimately stops herself because she's worried about what, you know, a man could do to her, like the control a man could have over her. So she gets really stubborn about it. Um, about... She's also worried about gossip. Yes. <laughs> a lot, because obviously in these high society circles that she is residing in, um, as a very famous opera singer although apparently she's not as good and famous as she thinks she is according to a frankly horrible teacher yeah i i hate this man this man he's like terrible. the biggest gossip constantly kind of telling her things that stress her out as well um why why does he strut around this movie like he's just playing it as light-hearted as everybody else but constantly tells her how bad she's doing as a yeah. singer. Like, she's obviously not, oh, I heard some you, there were some sour notes in that last performance that you gave. It was yeah. very, very off. It was not off. You get arguments like that about three or four times in the movie. Yes, and he's like the biggest gossip who's giving her all this information. He's the one who gets her believing that this man that she is kind of developing these feelings for that he's a gigolo because he's heard this yes. from this person and this, that he's been traveling with this older woman that he's calling his aunt, but it's really not his aunt. And he implies yes. that potentially like mm. she's paying him to be her young travel companion. So yeah. ultimately that is be, what she used to be a, a very famous a famous singer, singer in her own spell, right. So that she's the one, famous. Yes. So she is the one in the beginning, I believe, who is making that commentary about she how she's a good singer, but um, she's just not singing from her heart. And the person who's with her is this man who he he has nothing yes. but wonderful things to say about her. Um, and so ultimately, when he does make this advance and throw these flowers to her, she's really excited. But ultimately, she kind of has this underlying thought that he is this scandalous playboy gigolo. So she doesn't want to get hurt or be involved in anything like that. And like you said, worried about the gossip. So she tries to constantly stop herself, even though she's very much attracted to him and, and finds herself having feelings. She doesn't want to push it because of the fear of the gossip and because of the fear of getting hurt because of, you know, what he is. But you see these, this whole kind of moment of her getting very jealous. Um, she hears these romantic sounds coming, coming next door when she's in bed and she assumes that it's him with this older woman. And so she calls down to the desk and says, at this hour, who's making these noises? They're disturbing me. How dare them? You need to go tell them to be quiet. And then they tell her, oh no, it's a newlywed couple. And so she's like, oh, oh. So you see these moments of her actually, you know, trying to fight these feelings, but getting jealous. And it's very kind of relatable because, you know, in my youth, I've had moments of this, you know, crushing on someone and getting jealous when they like somebody else and not wanting to admit it, but getting frustrated about it. And it's very much, you know, a girl thing that I can relate to, um, kind of having these tosses and turns of, of somebody you like and maybe not oh, wanting to God admit it to yourself. So it feels very relatable in, in a lot of moments in how she plays it. Yeah, the, the 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 pain of desire, which I suppose, you know, emanates through this movie is is a relatable aspect. That is, you know, something that I think a lot of people who watch this movie, who obviously watched this movie when it came out, but who go and watch this movie now in the many decades since can always, you know, find parts of their own lives in. Yeah. Whether, you, you know, whoever you are, really, everybody loves at some point in their life, really. You, 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 or at least you'd like to think they do. Yeah. Um, to some degree. It's a very human thing, obviously. 
so to have the like you said the yeah the lamentation of love that you get in this movie is played really well by Glenn. And also Watson. kind of comedic in moments as well. Of, yeah, comedic as well, definitely. But that is that's the style of the early 30s rom com is to actually take itself really quite seriously yeah. in a romantic sense. You feel like rom coms become more comedic and less romantic as the decades go on, I think, in movies, where rom-coms today are basically just comedies. Yeah. You know, they're basically just pure comedies that happen to have a kiss at the end or happen to have a, someone get together at the end. The actual romance aspect of rom-coms is so much more important, I think, in the 30s than the comedic aspect of rom-coms. And I think that's just the nature of how those movies were made then, what people wanted from those movies then, and just how they were performed. Obviously, Gloria Swanson in this movie is, like we say, rather theatrical in her yeah. performance. Not that she's, you know over the top and, and, and crazy and dancing about a lot or doing anything like that, but expressively theatrical. Yes, this comes from yeah. obviously her background. This is what she does very, very well. Um, they linger on her a lot as well when she's in these moments of internal thought about what she, what, what, what she wants to do with Melvin Douglas. Maybe she's just had a word with her teacher who has told her that you will never be a great prima donna singer until you find love. Um, it is more important, there's a good quote from this movie actually, I think it is more important for an artist to love than to be loved. Yeah. Or something along the lines of that is a quote from this movie, which I really quite like actually. I think the teacher might say that, so I'll give him credit for that one. <laughs> but maybe she's just had a conversation with him where he's come out with something like that. Or, unless you get invited to play or, or to sing at the Metropolitan Opera House in New York, you have you are not the great singer you yeah, think so you, you think are. you are, yeah. So America um, is kind of the goal. Yeah, he just he keeps punching her down, really, and I don't like that. We should be yes. elevating. Um, Which he reveals to her that this other kind of lauded singer is having dinner with her fiance. Like he's ditching yes, her, yes, her yes. the dinner he's having with her to have dinner with this other um, opera singer. Yeah, but okay, so maybe she's just come out of a conversation like that, or maybe she's just come out with come out of a conversation with her her friend to me i'm not quite sure what her role is i think you referred to her as a as the maid before but i don't think she is a maid i feel like she's just like somebody who's in the house i don't feel like she does well i feel like she's some work. type of worker because she's obviously packing her things and taking orders from her and all of that so she seems to be very well dressed for such a i don't know I don't know. I suppose butlers are well-dressed, aren't they? I don't know. I might yes. be completely wrong. Um, or she's just come out of a, a conversation with her, talking about Melvin Douglas, talking about the need for love. She does get very excited whenever Melvin Douglas shows up at the window or shows up in, you know... Yes, the but then she comes to this realisation like that. that, oh, he's a gigolo, I can't allow myself yeah. to. So she kind of stops herself, even though she's really interested. So once she does get stood up by her fiancé, she decides to just celebrate life and, you know, and, which is also very relatable in terms of, okay, well, I can't get this guy, so I'm just going to act like I'm having the best time on my own. <laughs> You know, Aloof. and kind of force Aloof. myself to just dress up in my best outfit and go out and just enjoy my own company and screw men. And so she kind of gets herself in that mentality. So she gets not a bad mentality. No, it's great. And so she goes, especially out to when, yeah, we should say her best outfits, getting dressed up in her best outfits as we get 
as or as we see in the opening uh, title credits of this movie, all of Gloria Swanson's wardrobe in this movie was actually Chanel designed. And by Chanel design, we mean actually Actual. Coco Chanel yeah. designed. So you imagine she looks pretty good and she does. Yeah. Yes. It has uh, to be said. Yes. So I do love her kind of having this celebratory independent moment. Um, it feels really good for the character and also kind of relatable to, you know, when you things aren't going your way, you do want to kind of just give yourself some self-love. And oh, yeah. we get this really cool shot of her. Um, uh, uh, a band is playing music and um, one of the violinists comes over and like is giving her kind of a personal play and he's telling her about the song. And then we get this great shot of her just kind of looking up enjoying the music and we see like we're looking over the shoulder of the violinist at her expression just kind of taking in and enjoying the music i thought that was a really cool shot yeah this is what i mean there's there's very very interesting things that i think mervyn Leroy is actually doing directing this movie and framing the shots and things like this like i was saying there's a lot of lingering on gloria swanson because just taking advantage of the fact of the expressionism of Gloria Swanson is you can just sit a camera on her face for more than you could with other people or for a yeah. longer time than you could with other people just because she's able to convey more. There's a there's some really interesting kind of quick pans in the movie that you feel are quite unusual. You often think of... 30s movies early 30s movies as being quite static camera you know you're you're there you're watching the scene play out almost play like yes okay it will move when it needs to but there's kind of quick pans down and back up or, or tilts down and back up and, and to the side and, and then back or in you know in the focus of, of yeah. where the scene is just to kind of show you either context of what's being talked about or a little bit of a, a symbolic thing like that circle of cigarettes at, at the beginning yes of the i love a good the visual cue yeah that keeps being shown and is shown once in this kind of quick tilt down where you i can't remember exactly how how the scene is is framed now but i think you see gloria swanson you cut to melvin douglas and then it tilts down quick to the circle just to yeah. show you kind of how long he's been there because there must be about 35 cigarettes on cigarette the floor, butts there yeah think. so i love that good visual cue of just showing how long he was there by the amount of cigarette butts we see on the ground so we don't need yeah, a commentary on it you just cool. give us that visual um, something similar happens to as well when after her dinner, she realizes she's in the same place as, you know, her crush. <laughs> so she talks to the waiter played by Boris Karloff and yes. has him talk to the guy and tell and tell him, oh, you know, she's she wants some alone time with you, but she didn't want me to say. And like, so he's kind of playing the part of messenger and 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 it's a really kind of cute moment of him. Um, relaying this information and kind of saying the things she didn't want him to say in his That's message. A weird performance yes. from Boris Karloff. <laughs> I've seen, obviously, I've I've seen other performances of Boris Karloff outside of the world of of horror movies, but none, none where he's quite this light. Yes, he's being this like goss, almost gossipy kind of waiter. He, he it would not be, and I know this might be a little bit of an exaggeration, but it would not be out of place to cast Edward Everett Horton in that role. Yes, and like I saw Edward Everett Horton as the waiter or even the teacher, the the her music coach or whatever. Mm -hmm. I don't maybe I maybe don't think he's got quite enough uh, sturdy teacher. Yeah. But definitely as this waiter played by Boris Karloff. Boris Karloff does a fine job in this scene. Obviously. I'd I'd be I, I should have I should have looked at this actually as well. I think this might be after 
Frankenstein, because I'm sure Frankenstein was early 1931. And this, from what I can gather, is a little later in that year. Um, which is even weirder, really, <laughs> that people would have then seen him in Frankenstein. Obviously, they'd seen him before, but he wasn't yeah. who he was after Frankenstein. As soon as Frankenstein hit, Boris Karloff became the big thing rather than just some other supporting actor that sometimes was, yeah. you, you know, um, always did a fine job, but that wasn't the point of him. Or that was the point of him. He would come in, he would be reliable, and you wouldn't really remember too much about him. He would try and make you remember him, but it's weird that he does <laughs> what he does in this movie for one yeah. scene and just acts really like he smiles too much. I get on, <laughs> I get on, hit, un, unsettled. When I see Boris Karloff smile, I feel like something bad's going to happen, but it's not. Yeah, like it's, it's, it's sinister something underneath that smile. Um, but yeah, he's just he's playing he's playing setup. That's what he's playing. He's playing the person setting things up for a yes. couple in that yeah. scene. And especially and he's since he's kind of himself. yes, he's very proud of this delivering of this message. He's even like kind of throwing out their ideas that he can help like oh well you know i could say you're asleep if you don't want to talk to her but you know like throwing out kind of suggestions on how to handle the situation um it also made me realize just how tall melvin douglas must be because he was yeah. taller than boris karloff which i mean i know okay in frankenstein karloff's wearing those you know several inch high boots Lifts, but yeah. he's not a small man is he no. And Melvin Douglas was taller than him, so I don't know whether there's something going on there just because Melvin's the male lead, lead although it was Melvin he... Douglas's first movie, as far as I can gather. Ooh. So I don't really know what's going on there. Maybe Melvin Douglas is just massive. Yeah. But just seeing kind of the playfulness of this information being revealed to him and also Boris Karloff kind of saying a little too much and telling him things that she really didn't want him to say and, and saying that. She's like, she didn't want me to say, um, yeah. you know, this and that. But, you know, I thought I was wise to tell you. So that, I think, sets him on the track to kind of have fun with the situation and play with her a little bit. So when she ultimately... Yeah, which is really most of the rest of the movie. Yes. It's a very short movie. It's about 80 minutes yeah. of a movie. Um, yeah. But it, it, it really is, after after the Boris Karloff scene, a example of just two really great romantic leads playing quite comedically off each other and like you said before a lot of misunderstanding a lot of things very indirectly said very indirectly yeah. somebody trying to really explain the situation but them not being allowed to explain the situation and then trying to make out like oh i didn't mean to be here at all i meant to be in the Jackson's room <laughs> yeah well you should know if you're such good friends with the Jacksons that they're away for a week in Paris oh oh no I didn't know How that would oh, they leave oh, without well, telling I'm here. me I might as well... now I'm here I might as well come in now hadn't I and, and we'll sort it here because oh there's people outside and if they see me leave a, a man's room that isn't the Jacksons the the gossip will be terrible she yes. wants to be in that room still saying yes, and yes so the fact that she's really dancing around what she wants and making up these excuses and he's just playing along with it and he's not giving her anything and she's getting more frustrated but you see him kind of have this little grin on his face and just like the pan down of the cigarettes there's a very similar you know she's waiting for him to invite her to have a seat so we see her kind of glance to a chair and then the camera 
camera kind of quickly pans over to a chair and then she says a few more things and then she's waiting still waiting for him to invite her to sit so she looks at another chair and the camera pans to the other chair and he never asks her to sit he just kind of plays along with what she's saying and when she says she has to go she's kind of hoping that he will say no don't leave but he never does <laughs> so she's like what so I love kind of the look she gives when he's not you know falling for her little scheme that she's doing and his little smirks when he you know knowing that he's fully aware of what she's doing so the whole playful back and forth forth of her little plan to to go see him was a lot of fun for sure and and she oh the the amount of time it takes her to pretend she's leaving the room as well <laughs> yes a handkerchief down on the floor getting a dress coat in the door asking for a cigarette and yeah she says she's <laughs> leaving and then he closes the door and her dress is just hanging out the back but she hasn't moved once it she's still just standing there <laughs> he, he's basically he's shaking his head and rolling his eyes at this point because he just wishes she would actually say something but he's not yes. saying anything either it's the most frustrating kind right? of right like, it's like just say, say just something say let her something. off the hook she's throwing everything she could think of at this to get your attention without being too you know forward um because she's scared and she's worried and but she wants you know she wants this moment so um, the fact that he just lets her kind of play this out and doesn't do anything to to kind of play into what she's doing is really frustrating. Um, but ultimately, he knows she's going to be back. So after he says goodbye to her for what seemingly is the last time, you know, we see him setting up the mood lighting and spraying the oh, air yeah. and getting comfortable in a, in a chaise and then making sure the door is unlocked. So like he suspected, she kind of sneaks back in, sees him sitting there. And that's when more is revealed. And um, she really is fighting these feelings she's having because she does think he's this scandalous gigolo, despite how attracted to him she is. Yeah. Um, so it gets more serious in this moment and, and more kind of real feelings are coming out um, after this kind of real silly set piece that we got. Do you not think when he's spraying that kind of perfume spray around from that massive bottle that he's he's almost dancing around the room doing it? Or was that just implied by the really dancey music that... No, no I got that sense because he is legit. He says he's in love with her. So he's really excited about this moment that she's finally reaching out to him. You know, he's constantly been pacing and waiting for her. And so he thinks this is the moment she's finally come to me and now I can like, you know, reveal how I feel about her. So this is the moment. So I wouldn't be surprised if there was a bit of a kind of um, skip in his step in that moment, yeah. knowing that he's finally going to have this moment with the woman that he's in love with. So. Especially given that she still thinks he's a low life, not really a low life, but not someone she should be with. Yeah. In theory. She, she still believes that. Uh, another thing, do you know what I really liked about the way the movie kind of felt was I feel like there was a lot of purposeful, not necessarily, not, not POV shots, but very third person POV shots. Like you were looking over somebody's shoulder at something that was happening. I think you mentioned it before with the violin. Yeah. And you were watching Glorious Once and watch them. It felt purposeful to me that, you know, it wasn't just something on the screen. You were presented with the frame of the movie in such a way that you felt like you were standing in the room yeah. Look, like either looking over somebody's shoulder or looking over a table or something like that. Yeah, no, I thought a that little too. bit of something in the foreground. Yeah. For, for it to feel like you were you are there in that room. Yeah. And, and we're going. Very subtle, really, but a great way of making you feel part of the movie. And obviously, for a movie like this, you want 
your audience to feel themselves in the movie. You don't want them to just watch other people do things. Yeah. You want them to feel part of it because then you get more enjoyment out of it. You get more emotional satisfaction out of a, a movie like this from being like that. But I, I noticed it. And when I notice those things, it must be done on purpose. Yeah. So and really especially like after that violin scene, I, I wouldn't be surprised if those things were really purposeful in, in making the audience feel like they're in this room kind of delving into this intense moment between these two people because at a certain point the scene does get a bit aggressive and and intense it's oh, almost yeah. like he's trying to test her to you know see if there are some real feelings like he's getting a bit frustrated because she's just playing these games with him and he's being real with her and she's not not only not letting him kind of reveal his truth and say who he really is but she's also you know, pushing, pulling away, you know, she acts like she wants him to hold her and all of these things only for her to kind of run away from him. So he does kind of hold her down and he does tell her, you know, you know, why would you put yourself in this situation? Because look, I could, I could get, I could hold you down and not let you leave and lock you in. And so then it, it gets very kind of scary for her, but she obviously isn't afraid because she stays there with him and she still wants to be close to him. And so it feels like this is almost a test of her affection or he's just taking it to an extreme to force her to reveal her feelings because he knows that they're there. But she is just really scared to admit those things or say those things. And so yeah. he has to kind of take it to this extreme degree to get her to admit what she's feeling. And we should say as well that all the while all this romance stuff is going on, we're still getting scenes of singing training and, you know, after more performances that she's giving at the opera, you have her, who I think is her butler actually, Conrad, the kind of the larger yeah. dude, mm -hmm. yeah. who never goes to her performances. She always asks him, what did you think? What did of you my think? Yeah. Tonight, Conrad. And he says, Oh, well, I was here cleaning, or oh, well, I was here needing to pack, or oh, I'm sorry, I was indisposed. I couldn't be there today. And the teacher says, The day Conrad says your singing was good will be the day I say you are a wonderful singer. Yeah. Which is a, another horrible thing that the teacher says. Yes. But but it's but one more, it's we one get, more layer. Yeah. We get rewarded that. because of that line. Um, because, you know, ultimately after this kind of comedic and then this real intense scene with uh, Jim, the guy, she um, um, ultimately ends up like kind of staying the whole night with him. And so the next time we see her doing, or we don't see, but the next time we hear of her performance, it's amazing. It's full of all this passion. She's an amazing singer. Yeah. And the butler has gone to see her and says that she's great. So it's it's very much you know, her allowing herself to be loved and love is, is what she needed to really, you know, take her singing over the top. And, and, and that is where she's at. But she ultimately is still kind of hesitant to, to go all in because she does still have that underlying, okay, he, he, of that he's a, a gigolo, essentially. So she's yeah. still, that's still kind of looming in the back of her mind. He has given me the heart and soul that my music needed and yeah. my performance needed to allow myself to become the, the great star that I believe I can be. Yeah. And that even the teacher now believes she can yeah. be. Mainly because Conrad said so, but also <laughs> everybody felt the heart, the soul, the passion yeah. in that latest performance that we're constantly told wasn't there in previous yeah. performance. There, there was a trained voice there, a very, very well-trained voice, but no passion. Yeah. We need that passion. Well, conveniently, Jim Melvin Douglas 
isn't a gigolo. <laughs> no. Uh, well, she, did, she she gets this an, an invitation to sing in America, which we've we've yes. talked about is kind of the big goal for her. Um, and, and so then, yeah, she does go to see Jim, and all is revealed. <laughs> all is revealed. The older the the marquise the marquesa who is the older woman who jim has been spending the entire movie with who apparently everybody thought was basically a sugar mum yeah um wasn't that at all yeah she's actually his real auntie um the famous pre uh, older beauty you know of europe um former best opera singer ever yeah the marquise bianca or whatever she's called um who is yeah who is the aunt of jim who is of course jim the famous empresario who yeah. is deeply influential in the opera world and has to keep his real identity under wraps because he can't be having every wannabe singer or wannabe approaching him and singing their arias and all of this. Day. Yes. Believing, yeah, like like you said, believing themselves to be Ada or Carmen or anything yeah. like that. No, he can't be having that. He has to pretend that he's just uh, lower than he is. Um, so rather conveniently, he ends up being the one who's invited her to um, sing in, in New York and is also now in love with her and isn't it all very nice. Yes, so all is revealed because she pushed him away ultimately by the end because she thought he was this gigolo with this sugar mama. And, you know, then when this is revealed she realizes kind of how silly she's been and uh yeah then they end up together and it's really sweet and yeah satisfying <laughs> yeah satisfying, i think it's always funny how things just seem to work out perfectly yes. and again yes. it is a movie yeah it is a movie but yeah i think there's so much to enjoy in this there's obviously it's not obviously a, a particularly deep movie or anything like that. Yeah, it's not trying to be no. that. It's trying to be a crowd pleaser, and I think it's a great way of getting into, you know, the prime years of Glorious Once. And if you have only seen Sunset Boulevard, I think we probably should go yeah. and watch some of her uh, more notable silent movies or something like that where she really is at her the top of her game yeah but this is a really fun romance movie yeah it was great getting to see it was great getting to see this younger version of somebody i know so well in, in this later years role um so it was great to kind of go back with her and and see how you know how she was acting you know years before what what i know her from best so yeah these style of movies are always very enjoyable to me they're very easy to watch they feel very breezy yeah um and because it's pre-code like you said that the, there is a more modern feeling sensibility to the language modern feeling sensibility to the way people kind of realistically interact with each other as much as we enjoy the reserved and restrained uh, sexual tension that you get in 40s and 50s movies. Yeah, because I mean, this just is somebody it, who. Have it be outright in the early yeah, 30s. Yes, because. So more satisfying. Yes, because this movie, you have someone who is has been engaged for the past three years out here, you know, looking at this hot guy and trying to hook it up. So right. you would not get that. You would not get that while, in later while, years while without, her fiance yeah, is just the a, a really weirdly kind of immature, pathetic kind of man. Yeah, spineless man. Yeah, who doesn't really play any major role in the movie no. at all. I don't. He just think. annoys her essentially. Um, 
but yeah, I I liked that about it. And you do have to remind yourself that it's it's pre-cold and to expect more directness. Um, yeah. I've kind of got that recently because I've recently read the book of the Postman Always Rings Twice. Okay. Which is is a is a movie I haven't even seen. I yes. haven't even seen the movie. Well, if um, we do it, it or, would be a deja vu. <laughs> it would, because there's a, a, a Jack Nicholson. Jack one Nicholson. As well. mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, which I'd be really interested to do, actually. Definitely now having read the book, because the book is like ridiculously kind of sexually direct. Okay. It's it's <laughs> really like frank with yeah. how it's saying things and obviously that book was like written in the 20s or something like that um you have to kind of realize oh god yeah this is this is noir but it's not restrained there's, yeah. there's not illusions it's just there in front of you everything's there yeah. um so i'm wondering really how you know they're able to in the in the movie of the postman always rings twice, which is is John Garfield, isn't it? And Lana Turner. I want to say it's Lana Turner. Please tell me it's Lana Turner. Um, how they're able to actually make what is is known as a pretty damn good noir movie, but make all of the very obvious eroticism of that novel. Oh and make it appropriate yeah for a 1947 release yeah that that'll that'll be an interesting watch <laughs> it'd be very interesting that i imagine probably the nicholson one goes probably goes there yeah reasonable to the book i would imagine um so i would definitely be interested to do that but it, it just it reminded me of the fact that i've just done that because yeah you know, older things are just as nasty as things now. You just have to remind yourself they are. Yeah. You just have to remind yourself they are. But no, I really enjoyed Tonight or Never. A nice light-hearted switch yeah. up. Or it's a wonderful podcast. Always a nice thing to do every now and again, Janine. Unless we have anything else to say about this movie. No, I really enjoyed it. Let's call the episode there. Episode, I think, 270 Ooh. of It's a Wonderful Podcast. Talking Tonight or Never from 1931. Mervyn Leroy directed. Gloria Swanson, Melvin Douglas, Alison Skipworth, who plays the uh, Marquesa, and a oh. tiny little role from the great Boris Karloff. <laughs> if there's one other reason to just watch this movie yes watch it for that it's, it's so bizarre but really <laughs> enjoyable yes um, a lot of fun an awful lot of fun it is of course not the only show we have on the it's a wonderful podcast feed we have morgan hasn't seen of which we have started a particularly notable and <laughs> am i happy about it am i not happy about it who knows we've started a particularly notable series over on morgan hasn't seen the oh, sure have. impossible movies uh due to the release of the, of the new mission impossible this month of july um that's why we're doing that finally janine's very happy with herself i am i'm less happy um <laughs> We also, of course, have Monday Madness, which is our topical show, our chilled out show. We we have movie reviews and news discussion, trailer discussion. Um, we, we pick a topic to talk about sometimes as well, based on something that is happening in that particular world. We play games. It's always fun over on monday madness which you can of course also find on the it's a wonderful podcast youtube channel in full glory video form subscribe ding your notification bells over there and of course subscribe to this podcast feed wherever you are listening 
now on all major podcast platforms. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we have you covered here on the It's a Wonderful Podcast feed. We spoke about the Patreon before, of course, if you would like to join our wonderful patrons over on Patreon. Um, there are links in the description to do that. Patreon.com slash It's a Wonderful One. Find the tier that is right for you or there is just a donation link as well if you would like to support us that way. You can, of course, just find us on social media on Twitter at It's a Wonderful One. You can find me on Twitter at the Purple Dawn with a three instead of the E in the because, Janine. Three is a magic number. On Instagram and TikTok at the Purple Dawn. All your opera singery stuff is where. <laughs> You can find me at Janine Debean underscore on Twitter, Janine Debean on Instagram and TikTok. If you want to get any merch for any of our shows, just check the description for the link or search It's a Wonderful Podcast on teespring.com. And if you want to purchase any of my art in print form, you can find that at my big cartel shop, Design.bigcartel.com. I will give you an option, Janine. I would like mm. um, some sort of opera singing as best you can, but <laughs> like not too deafeningly loud so you burn people's <laughs> eardrums who may be listening with headphones in or you can do boris karloff's famous lisp oh. <laughs> um three two one see a lot of heart a lot of soul and a lot of passion as well as a trained voice. Better than Glorious Wobbleton. And that calls it that. Bye!